the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Thank you, Doc. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That, of course, was Sarita singing Sonny and... Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny, the night he hosted The Tonight Show. And uh, I want to welcome and thank David Lisby for designing that wonderfully uh, filmic opening for me. And I want to say hello again to the co-creator, co-founder, and director of our show, our technician in California, Don Newsom. Don, how are you today? Well, sir, I am doing just absolutely fantastic. It has been an exceptional week. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you're doing great. I watched, uh, I tell you, it's it's baseball time, and I watched a couple of baseball games over the weekend. I must tell you what it is that I love about uh, baseball. You can watch the first inning, then you can go out for dinner, and then you can go to a show, and then you can visit some friends and have a nightcap. And then you can come home and get into bed and let the last two innings put you to sleep. That's what I love about baseball. But last night, I was totally incapable of getting to sleep. And what kept me awake was the so-called interview by Leslie Stahl of President Donald J. Trump. Now, uh, I must uh, tell you, that uh, it was Mark Twain who said, if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let you do it. And as George Carlin said, it's a club to which we do not belong. Okay, so I did not vote in the last election because I know that there's nothing that I can do about it. And of course, being in the 99%, it's not a club to which I belong. So I sit here sort of as a neutral watching Donald Trump and watching all the events unfold before me. As, but what I am a big, big fan of is real journalism. So that means I am absolutely no fan of CBS and made even less of a fan after last night's performance or ill-prepared performance by Leslie Stahl in trying to interview the president of the United States. And indeed, it was not an interview. Um, I am not a fan of CBS anyway, and that is because CBS long ago decimated and destroyed and lied about Jim Garrison, the DA in New Orleans, who had actually solved the murder of John Kennedy in 1967, and with the help of Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and Mike Wallace, literally destroyed him. Then he went, they went ahead and they published the Warren Report, which they continued to pipe around the world right now and destroy anyone today who tries to question the Warren Report. So we know what the C stands for, and now we know what the BS stands for. 
The sad thing is that Leslie Stahl was totally ill-equipped to match wits or words with Donald Trump. She is just incapable of that. And sadly, she was the same one assigned by CBS in 60 Minutes three months ago to go to Moscow to sit down with the young woman president of Russia today and hammer her and attack her, asking her why Russia today is always attacking the American media. This woman, who was 20 years younger than Leslie, absolutely hoisted an ill-prepared Leslie Stahl on her rusty, dull petard. She pointed out how dreadfully criminal the American media was, how evil and corrupt the American media was, to which Leslie Stahl was making an important contribution. To me, the sad thing about what Leslie did is she did not, first of all, ask questions. She did not talk as though she was talking to the president of the United States. She talked to him or badgered him as if she were talking to a Kardashian, as if she were talking to a reality TV star. Now, this whole thing that's going on in Washington right now may be a reality TV show for the 99% of us. It looks like the 1% battling amongst themselves. She neglected to ask the most important question about the media. She kept hitting at Donald Trump about why he did not attack publicly and say nasty things about Putin. She didn't badger him once. She didn't badger him twice. She badgered him three times saying that Putin is an assassin. And Trump smartly answered, well, maybe so in his own country, but he's not doing it over here. And that's all that we, that's all that we care about. She had the chance. I will tell you, if she, she was as ineffectual in talking to Donald Trump and trying to down or trash Donald Trump, as Miss Ford was with Kavanaugh. Now, I don't say that Miss Ford was ineffectual, but what Miss Ford pointed out was a Democratic and the Republican senators who were supposed to be interrogating Kavanaugh for his position in the Supreme Court. And I must say, I'm totally apolitical, but as soon as Trump nominated Kavanaugh months ago, I predicted he would be appointed to the Supreme Court regardless of what happened. But what her presence pointed out that the Republicans and the Democratic senators were more interested in listening to this possibly true or untrue 30-year-old ineffectual salacious story and Kavanaugh's beer drinking. Not once did I hear one senator ask the very, very important questions about the judicial decisions made by Kavanaugh while he was a judge, especially a district court judge in Washington, D.C., where a man named Christopher Morley, after five years, had brought a Freedom of Information suit demanding the release of the CIA files pertaining to the death of John Kennedy, he refused to let those files out. This is the man that Donald Trump wanted on the Supreme Court. These are the questions that should have been asked. I will bring this also up about Miss Ford. I see a lot of Republicans out there now still hammering this lady. 
for possibly lying to these people to destroy this man's career. I'm going to say this to you with the deepest sincerity, and that is her lies, if they were lies, were nowhere near as important or as significant as the lies told by President George Bush when he said there were map weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, supported by the other war criminals, Condoleezza Rice and Powell and Cheney and all of the rest of them that resulted in the death of a million innocent people and suicides a dozen a day by the GIs who fought this illegal fake war in Iraq because of those lies. These people are the liars. Miss Ford is not a liar compared to these people. And the sad thing is, is if Miss Leslie had badgered George Bush the way that she badgered Donald Trump, that fake war and those lives might have been saved. Now, I, I really am so upset about this, and I'm, I'm try I don't usually do this. I got to get it off of my chest, otherwise, it'll make my stomach sick. Now, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to misinform anyone. I'm not trying to get you to change your minds about anything. I'm just trying to point out a, a few simple, simple facts that we see before us right now. And I think that there may be a problem if Donald Trump gets a second term. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now about how I feel so strongly about this. John Kennedy was denied a second term. Had he gotten a second term, he would have gotten rid of Lyndon Johnson. He would have probably curtailed the Federal Reserve, and he would have probably had APAC uh, registered as a foreign lobby, and he would have prevented that fake war in, Viet in Vietnam. If Donald Trump gets a second term, there will be a major war, but not between us and Russia and, and China or Korea. It'll be a major war between the American people, the 99% and the 1%, because they're the ones that own the guns. It'll be that deep state war that Trump keeps talking about. So let's get to the business of the media and Russia. Trump said to her, I don't need to go to Russia to get help to get elected in this country. And of course, that was very true. And if Russia is trying to interfere, it's with computers. Never is it brought up about what we do when we change governments overseas. We don't do it with computers. We do it with cannons and cancer and assassinations. That's how we do it. But the media never reports on that. And if the government decides to continue to do it, which they're still doing, then our government and the media, with the help, they applaud it. So when she's telling Trump he should attack Putin in public, she is really propagandizing for the deep state to destroy possible peace to the two great nuclear superpowers in the world. That is indeed very, very scary. So as I look at what's coming up in the November midterm elections between the Democrats and the Republicans, with, which to me is the only difference is, is the spelling. 
But I now look upon it as I would look upon watching the movie The Godfather. The Godfather is one of the great class American, the classic American films in which we find ourselves rooting for gangsters. Well, that's what it's going to be like in the midterm elections, for me at least. I'll be sitting back and I'll be watching the Corleone gangster family against the Santini gangster family. That's all it's going to be for me. And so I would give the media this little word of advice. The question that Leslie Stahl could have answered was what, what was pointed out by Thomas Jefferson at the founding of the, of the republic. You cannot have a functioning democracy without an informed country. That means the media has to inform us. But six corporations cannot inform us. So if Leslie Stahl wanted to make America great again, all she had to do in her very nasty way was to pose the question this way to Donald Trump. You're the one, Mr. President, who brought up the business of fake news. So why don't you take your pen and a piece of paper and sign an executive order rescinding President Bill Clinton's dreadful communications act that turned 95% of our media over to six major corporations, which is undoubtedly a monopoly. All you have to do is reverse that. Because when John Kennedy was killed in 1963, a person or company could only own five radio stations, five television stations, or five newspapers. 1,500 different American individuals and corporations own the media. That, Mr. President, is what you should do. That is the question that no one poses. So I would say to Leslie Stahl and CBS and any of the major media that obviously do not want Donald Trump as a second-term president, I would suggest they quit this obvious bashing and trashing of him. Because what is going to happen is there probably aren't too many of you left who are sitting on the fence like I am. You're either pro-Donald or you're anti-Donald. Me, I'm still on the fence, which is very uncomfortable from this high position. Tried to look at both sides, sitting on these pointed spikes. But what is going to happen is a lot of the people watching this are going to become more and more suspicious of the media and more sympathetic toward Donald Trump. They'll look upon him as Marlon Brando or Al Pacino, and they may just vote for him. So with that in mind, let me leave you with this great mind, great line from Joseph Mankiewicz's brilliant film, All About Eve. This is when Betty Davis going up the stairs says, fasten your seatbelt, folks. It's going to be a very, very bumpy ride. But right now for me, it's going to be a very, very pleasant ride because I've waited a long time to talk to a man that Jeff, I, you know, I do Jeff's show every fourth Friday of the month. And Jeff told me over the weekend when he found out I was going to have this gentleman as a guest, he said, John, you're going to be talking to one of my very favorite people in the 18 years that I've done this show. He is by far the most informed, one of the most meticulous writers and researchers I have ever run across. He is going to be a joy to you and your listeners. He's a former AP reporter. He is a historian. He is also 
an author of over a half a dozen books and an awful, most of the books are historical, unbelievably thoroughly researched, some of them quite controversial. One, as a matter of fact, I think was recently, recently censored by Amazon for a while, and there was such a furor they put it back up. But some of three of those books are Judaism's Strange Gods, Usury in Christendom, and Secret Societies, about which John Kennedy talked a lot about, and Psychological Warfare. It is an informing delight for me to welcome to the show Michael Hoffman. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for sitting through that diatribe. Where are you and how are you? Thank you, John, for that very generous assessment of my work. I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I'm very fine. Thank you. How, how did you happen to pick Idaho to live in? Because I think you were, weren't you born in Washington or New York? I was born in New York. But I, uh, I, I moved relentlessly, uh, both in my career in journalism and uh, also trying to find a safe haven for our family. We have a large family and we wanted to be able to uh, have a sort of redoubt for the children so that they could uh, be raised in a more traditional manner. And Idaho in the 1990s and in the early part of the 21st century filled that bill for us. And I remain here and I'm very happy to be here among many people uh, who I would say are on the same wavelength as I am. Oh, that's wonderful, Michael. Congratulations for that. And and you're not alone in wanting to move to Idaho and middle uh, middle America. But for my sake, what I would like to know is something about you and your background. You're born. You were born. You're born in New York. But tell me a little bit about your your mother and your father and your siblings. Your early education. Your early influences. And what you really aspired to be when you were a youngster and how you happened to end up becoming the historian and the writer and researcher that you are. Well, in one word, I would say curiosity. And my curiosity was piqued by your opening uh, talk monologue there when you mentioned uh, what uh, Bill Clinton had imposed in terms of allowing a monopoly control over the media. I found that very interesting. And also the discussion of uh, Dr. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, one thing that should be brought up about Kavanaugh is that he was appointed by Kenneth Starr, the special counsel looking into the death of Vince Foster as one of the lead investigators into that enigma and quite possibly uh, murder of Hillary Clinton's White House lawyer. And uh, Kavanaugh did not perform that well. I haven't read the many thousands of pages uh, which are now available from the National Archives online, but they can be rather easily accessed. And for those who are inclined to do so, they can study those thousands of pages. But Christopher Ruddy in the, uh, the best and I think the only book uh, on the Vincent Foster murder case, which explores the significant probability that the Clintons had something to do uh, with the strange death of Vince Foster, Christopher Ruddy, uh, he's not very happy with Kavanaugh because in the course of uh, trying to impugn the testimony of a man who said that uh, he, saw the, um, he saw Vince Foster's car at the park and it wasn't being driven by Vince Foster, and that I believe his name was Rodriguez, and that particular witness Kavanaugh continued to badger. Now, this is on the testimony of Christopher Ruddy in his book, so I'm assuming that he's credible in describing Kavanaugh's interrogation here. But in the course of that, 
Kavanaugh had attempted to insinuate that this witness was a homosexual. And of course, today, that would actually burnish his credentials. But in 1997, that was still considered uh, a rather suspicious designation. So I mentioned that just to flesh out the case of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, I certainly would prefer to have him on the Supreme Court than Merrick Garland. But I think the general tenor of your broadcast is, is that we must take all of this cum grano solace with a grain of salt and not necessarily uh, pin our flag to either side here because the emotions and the propaganda tend to sweep right-wingers and left-wingers along. And more often than not, the truth is somewhere else. But I, I mentioned that because you did bring that up. And also, uh, PBS uh, hosted the Bill Moyers World or Bill Moyers program for a while. And when I was with AP, I corresponded with Mr. Moyers. I knew some other people who were in the administration of uh, Lyndon Johnson, Grace Halsell. And uh, he did a wonderful show on the failure of the media, just what you were talking about in terms of their malfeasance and cooperation with the conspiracy to invade Iraq and to create a groundwork motivation for that. He talked about Ann Garrels, uh, and, and he fingered many other journalists, and that's a program worth trying to find uh, on the Internet. Uh, so that's that. Um, as far as my background goes, I was uh, raised by two parents. Uh, one was conservative. The other was liberal. They're both, <laughs> they're, they're both upstream swinger, uh, swimmers. My mom was a cigarette smoker, and she passed away in her 60s. Uh, my dad was a marathon runner, and he's still alive at age 91. Um, How but, wonderful. But in the interface between the two of them, as well as my grandfather, uh, who was a, you mentioned the godfather, my grandfather was an anti-mafia Sicilian-American, and uh, he was an amateur revisionist historian. He had some inside knowledge on uh, American history and even current events. He knew that, um, that Joe Kennedy had helped to purchase the election for John F. Kennedy. And like you, I admire uh, President Kennedy very, very much. And I was a child when he was assassinated, but it struck me to the core and it remains so. And I've been on the case more or less whenever I've been able to, including interview some people who were connected to what I believe are the perpetrators. And we could talk about that later. But um, Grandpa in 1960 had told my mother, who was, uh, you know, she suffered a great deal of consternation listening to him say Joe Kennedy was a crook and uh, he helped to buy the election. <laughs> Through the Chicago, uh, through the Chicago machine, Mayor Daley's machine, and I think we know that that's true now. But it was it was his skepticism about history, combined with my father and mother, who <clears throat> were both uh, big readers and um, definitely interested in the life of the mind. And I was always kind of an upstream swimmer from that type of uh, upbringing as a child. What what uh, what were you when you were a teenager? Did you did you have the remotest idea that you would become a historian and a researcher and a writer, or did you want to play baseball or football or anything else like that? Oh yeah, I wrestled and uh, and you know uh, it, I I was raised in upstate New York, so I wasn't raised on the mean streets of the of the rotten apple. But nonetheless, there were um, uh, youth gangs that would pale in comparison to the murderous uh, uh, scoundrels that are operating them today. More, something more out of West Side Story than uh, out of what we, uh, the Bloods and the Crips. But you sort of had to choose side back then. There were no uh, feminist uh, duty guards on the school grounds to protect you from so-called bullies. And, uh, 
And so, yeah, I mean, I had my share of fights uh, and I, I wrestled. I was a long distance runner, uh, not quite in the category of my dad. And and I think that I was fairly well-rounded, or though very wild and spent too much time chasing girls and things like that. And I, <laughs> I'll tell you, John, I would hate to be nominated for the Supreme Court because what they might <laughs> dig out about me, I, I don't think I'd get past the first day, you know. And uh, and and I think that that's a sad a sad comment on America because out here on the West, one of the things about the West, the great promise of the West in the 19th century was it offered a man the or a woman the opportunity to reinvent themselves. So that, for example, if you ever take the time and trouble to actually read the book True Grit, upon which the movie of the same name is based, you see um, that the marshal, uh, played by John Wayne and later, later by Jeff Bridges, had actually been a bank robber himself at one point in his career and as an anti-usury campaigner, my uh, my uh, <laughs> antenna were pricked up when the uh, the character of Marshall uh, Cogburn says, well, when he was asked, why did you rob a bank? And he said, you can't rob a usury bank, uh, meaning, <laughs> meaning that they're criminals to begin with. So, you know, um, people make mistakes in their past, whether it's Brett Kavanaugh, and I'd like to find any person who's lived a completely sinless, spotless life. Um, but and then you came to the West and reinvented yourself as a marshal or whatever. And I think that now with people being tracked from cradle to grave with no real respite, no chance to be born again, it makes it much more difficult for a person to try and recreate and rehabilitate what might have been a false start in youth. And after all, what is youth if we can't make mistakes when we're young? Oh, I must tell you, Michael, that is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant observation, because I've always said the best way to lead a very successful life is to overcome your mistakes and the bad choices you make along the way, because we all do that. What was your very first job when you got out of school? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I did all kinds of work. I was a longshoreman. Um, and you often hear we often hear our father say, well, when I when I was young, I had a lot harder than you. I, I dug ditches. Well, I actually did that, too. I was longshoreman. <laughs> Canning factories, if I had the talent of Steinbeck, maybe there would have been a novel coming out of that. A lot of manual labor, a farm work, because I'm from the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, and the glorious farms are still there. And so uh, that was my background, the life of the mine combined with uh, the manual labor, and um, that's, that's about it. Well, the next question I'm going to ask you is, how and when you became... You went from that to becoming a really good AP reporter. I want to tell you, if you got about 30 seconds so that I could tell you a brief, brief uh, story about usury. I had never in my entire life wanted to have a credit card. And credit cards were foisted upon me when I created a show called Real People. It was on NBC for years. And if I had to travel, I could not pay cash for a car or a hotel. I had to have a credit card, so it was foisted upon me. And along the way, credit cards got uh, a little too tempting for me. And so I had, in, in, in buying things for our new house, we moved up here in Vegas and buying things for my wife and my son, things got out a little eye hand. So I decided, I, I one day was on the internet and it said that I could get a loan of $15,000 to pay off all these debts for only four and a half percent. And I thought, wow, that's terrific because that's better than Bank America. So I got it. 
And I and of course my wife paid all the bills. After two years, the fifteen thousand dollars never went down. And my wife said to me, "Honey, why isn't this going down?" So I said, "Well, give me the paperwork." Now, Michael, I had never looked at. It. I looked at the paperwork, and there it said, "If we missed or was late with one payment, the rate would go from four and a half percent to thirty-one and a half percent." So I got on the phone to uh, it was American Express, and I said, "Hold it, the post office was late because we're never late." It said they said it didn't matter. I said, well, did we pay a fine for being late? She said, yes, you paid a fine. I said, the fine is paid, so put us back to the 4.5%. We cannot do that. So what I did, I went to my pension plan. I took out the $15,000. I sent it to American Express along with a burned credit card. <laughs> and the president of American Express was a guy named Ms. Chenault. And I told Mr. Chenault that she he should not be sitting in an office in New York City in the top floor, he should be sitting in a jail cell for usury and that he's lucky that his building is brick. Otherwise, it would look the same as this card. Guess what? A month later, they sent back a notice saying I could have another credit card. That's my experience. I think this is horrible. And the fact that you, you write about usury in this country is so important. Okay. That story told, which we'll get to later. Tell me how and when and you became an AP reporter. Well, I should preface that with my time at the State University of New York in Oswego. It used to be called Oswego State Teachers College. And uh, I guess its most famous alumnus is Jerry Seinfeld. He was there a little, okay. bit, a little bit after me. And hopefully there's no connection between the two of us. Also, Al Roker, Al Roker, the newsman, went there because they had a very good radio and TV school uh, at that time. I'm sorry I didn't get involved because later on I would be in radio um, on local radio stations, and that was my introduction to the AP. But um, they had, uh, you know, we could laugh at the State University of New York. It's not Stanford or Harvard by any means, but I was fortunate to have a stellar faculty in my own specialty, which was political science and history, Dr. Richard Funk and a uh, professor of ideology and the history of ideas who was presented to me as a Jordanian, presumably because he didn't want a lot of flack from the many Judaic people who were up from New York City and attending the school. There were probably 10 or 15 percent uh, Judaic kids in the student body. Most of them were thoroughly okay. I think if there was any problem about this alleged Jordanian, it would have more likely come from their parents. But it turned out, and I only found out in my final months there, that he was a Palestinian, Faiz Abu Jaber. His niece is a um, is a uh, accomplished writer today, and she even tells some stories about him. But uh, he was a brilliant man, and I was talking about history on the world scene. Uh, what could I investigate about the Crown of England or um, the East India Company? And he said, Mike, you're from an area that was known as the Psychic Highway, the burned over district. And they called the Finger Lakes region that because uh, the first feminist movement in America was created there. Um, the anti-Masonic movement arose there. Mormonism arose there. It was just a hotbed of all of these different movements, which continue to affect us to this day. And he pointed out to me the murder of William Morgan in 1826. He was kidnapped from a jail in Canandaigua, New York, which launched the anti-Masonic uh, political party. 
which held the first um, the first political convention of any party in America. They nominated William Wirt, the former attorney general of the United States, as their candidate. And it was a very powerful movement in the Northeast, which ended up having some of the personnel of Abraham Lincoln's presidency uh, being key early members of this movement. The most illustrious, I would say, was President John Quincy Adams. So what wow. Dr. Faiz, what Faiz Abu-Jabber said to me was, Mike, get in on that case. Don't worry about what you cannot make yourself an expert on. Make yourself an expert on what's right in your own backyard. And I did begin digging into the William Morgan case. It's uh, certainly a, a profound motivation for me in my book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. And after I got out of school, I wrote a little pamphlet called Masonic Assassination. There was a chapter on Joseph Smith, who was killed by uh, Freemasons at the Carthage Jail. Uh, there's a chapter on William Morgan, who launched this movement, and also on Edgar Allan Poe. Um, th that's more speculation than, than a type of historiography. I've long believed that Poe had the symptoms of a man who was struck in the back of the head, and he was known at the time, but the teaching stupid profession today does not teach Poe as he should be taught. They teach the telltale heart or the pit and the pendulum, and yes. they, avoid, they avoid an anti-Masonic classic like the Cask of Amontillado, in which a Freemason is walled up with one of the symbols of masonry, a trowel, and which is pretty typical of Poe's sardonic humor. So from Dr. Uh, Faiz Abu-Jaber and my own family's influence on me, uh, I began uh, digging into history right in my own backyard. And in between um, getting married and having children, I landed a job at a local radio station in upstate New York. And from there, I landed a job helping to write and report for the state wire uh, of the Albany and New York bureaus of the Associated Press. Oh, how wonderful. When did you then decide that you were going to make yourself a permanent writer and author and historian? You know, you can't really decide that unless you're coming out of one of the establishment indoctrination factories. I mean, if you're coming from the Columbia School of Journalism or even more modest English departments at uh, colleges, the University of North Dakota or something like that, that's one career channel. And the other career channel is the one that I pursued, which was more difficult and that was much more prevalent in the 1900s, the early part of the 20th century, when you could start out as a copy boy in one of the large metropolitan newspapers, and by virtue of what you knew and what and not what degree you had, you could be promoted right to the top of the pile. Um, you know, we see this with Thomas Edison. You could you could show up at Edison's factory and laboratory, and if you talked a good line and within a few days were demonstrating to Mr. Edison that you had what it took. He didn't care whether you had an engineering degree. He wanted to put you to work. I think it's very unfortunate in America today that there's such a heavy emphasis on this degree factory, although I think we're seeing less of that in Silicon Valley where they're recruiting 16-year-olds who can write code. But um, I mention all this because, once again, I was at work as a farm laborer when I landed the job at the local radio station. And by dint of my reporting and consistently sending in these reports to the Associated Press, uh, that's when I got uh, elevated to uh, a wire, an actual wire writer. And from there, I also did a little bit of work for the American Contemporary Radio Division of ABC News. And from oh, there, 
From there, I got fired from one of the radio stations because <laughs> in September of 1982, uh, after a summer of Ariel Sharon's terror bombing of downtown Beirut, uh, which culminated in August of 1982, now long forgotten, the bombing of clearly marked schools and hospitals and apartment buildings, the famous Sabra and Shatila massacre occurred. But that's actually, just like you were talking about Dr. Ford's alleged um, mendacity compared with George W. Bush's mendacity. It's unfortunate that the key crime that the Israelis committed in 1982 is enumerated as being Sabra and Shatila when they killed 10 times that amount in the environs of the city of, of Beirut in that 1982. Well, I produced a documentary called um, Racism uh, and the Beirut Massacre. And uh, well, that I had a, a Judaic physician was leading the charge against my position at the radio station, and uh, there were several other rabbis and so forth. But the main defender of me and the guy who invested many, many hours placing phone calls and protesting my firing and trying to have me keep my job was Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor Noam Chomsky. And um, I have to say, he did more for me than anyone else did. And uh, I've maintained a, I won't say friendship, but I would say a working relationship with Dr. Chomsky over the years that I've appreciated a great deal, even though he disagrees with me and I disagree with him. From there, I went to the Institute for Historical Review. Um, well, actually, I was at Spotlight Newspaper in Washington, D.C., then transferred to the IHR out in California. And after that, I started to my own publishing company, Independent History and Research, and that's where we've been ever since. Wonderful. Were you at Spotlight when uh, Mark Lane was there and he fought that case uh, for, uh, uh, against uh, E. Howard Hunt, the plausible denial case? Were you there? I wasn't there. I'm sorry that I never had the privilege of meeting uh, him, but Mark Lane was a very fine man from everything I was told. And uh, again, another example of a Judaic person that, you know, when they're doing right and they're doing well, they, they do it better than almost anyone else. And the courage that Mr. Lane uh, demonstrated and the very fine spade work that he performed is certainly very admirable. And Willis Cardo, who was the uh, the engine behind a lot of this, uh, he also ended up suing Bill Buckley as a part of that, or Buckley sued him. I forget which the case was, but Cardo had a lot of fun with Buckley there as well. And there's a fairly extensive section on Buckley's hypocrisy and venality in my book, Judaism Discovered, which, by the way, has been banned by Amazon. The three books banned by Amazon in August of this year, uh, after Amazon having sold them for many years um, with large sales, I mean, we we probably netted about $1,200 a month from these three books, both on the Kindle. Wow. And, Good for you. Well, it's, you know, it's small potatoes compared to Rush Limbaugh or something. But for us, you know, we just take it one step at a time. And that's Judaism, Strange Gods, which is a synopsis and condensation of the very large textbook, Judaism Discovered, which is 1,100 pages. And then a book I did on the trial of Ernst Zundel, which I reported for the spotlight, The Great Holocaust Trial. So those three books are completely removed from the Kindle, and two of the books are completely removed for sale in print, which is uh, Judaism, Strange Gods, and the Great Holocaust Trial. They're unavailable. And all Amazon did was send me a generic, lifeless, bloodless, kind of anemic notice. I think they're very ashamed 
of the disgrace of censoring history books. So you get something that if you even quote it or reproduce it, it's rather ambiguous. It says that you violated our content guidelines. So after all these years of them selling it, uh, you know, years and years and years, Judaism Discovered came out in 2008. So they've been selling that for 10 years. Suddenly we violated, you know, the guidelines. If you look at the guidelines, it's stuff like, well, you didn't deliver the books on time or you failed to notify <laughs> us. About, and then there is one about um, a content guideline uh, of something that's offensive. And they actually have the chutzpah to say, well, when you ask for what a definition of offensive is, it says on the website, well, you can imagine what that is. So, it's, you know, it's kind of a joke on the uh, on the bookseller. And um, well, Jeff, Jeff told me over the weekend, he thought that the they had rescinded their uh, their censorship of your books and were selling them again. That's the impression I got. Well, the thing is, there's a large used book market in uh, Amazon. Amazon is just... Oh. A- it's an enormous market, and for all this hype about artificial intelligence and robots patrolling every corridor of Amazon, actually at Amazon, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing because Amazon is so frugal. Like, for example, before we were banned by PayPal for basically the same reasons that you know we were banned from Amazon, PayPal banned us after many successful years in 2017. If you call PayPal's, uh, if you're a, a respected seller on there, as we were, and you call their customer service, you get an American in America who speaks clear English and can answer your questions. Um, if, you, if you email Amazon, you're getting somebody in India who may or may not have any type of mastery over the English language. And they don't really know that much about what's going on in Seattle. And I will surmise that what got those three books banned was their presence on the Kindle. I think that that's what really offends the cryptocracy or the deep state is the fact that our books were increasingly being sold in places like India and Japan and the Middle East. On the because, Kindle. You know, because when I put on Facebook the fact that you were going to be a guest, I got emails and messages from around the world saying they had your books, they had them kindled, and they were certainly anxious to uh, to see you on the show. Uh, Michael, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, are you familiar with Ben Hecht? Ben Hecht, yes, of course. Uh, uh, next to Mark Twain, Ben Hecht is my second favorite American writer based on just one book, which was his autobiography called... Uh, a Child of the Century, the best book I ever read about anybody in show business. But then his book, Perfidy, about that trial in Israel is a classic, which you can read for nothing. There's so much to talk to you about. I'm going to take a brief break. During the break, you and I cannot talk. And after the break, I want Joe Satili to join us because I'm sure he's been cha- been chafing at the bit to chat with you. So be we'll be right back with the remarkable Michael Hoffman right after this break. I want to thank you all for tuning in to listen to to look at a little undertaking here on BBS Radio, John Barber's World. And if you want to hear it again or look at it again, go to BBS Radio Archives, John Barber's World, or you can go to my site, YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com. Not only are these shows archived, but you will find highlights and excerpts from my 40 years in television and show business. Fabulous stories, some dramatic, 
some funny, some truly interesting, and a few outrageous mad-as-hell rants, which I certainly enjoyed doing. You will also see the second-best documentary ever made about anybody in show business. It's called Ernie Kovacs Television's Original Genius. By far the best film ever made about somebody in show business was Searching for Sugar Man, which won an Oscar a few years ago. But most importantly to me, you will find the links to what I believe is the most important movie ever made in America. It's a runaway hit on Amazon, thanks to you, and on Vimeo. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. But also free on this site, the original Garrison Tapes, The Last Word in the Assassination, The Last Word on the Garrison Tapes. And if you are truly, truly interested in the subject, go to Len Osanix, Black Op Radio, 50 Reasons for 50 Seasons. It's a fabulous undertaking, and you should not miss it. This film would not exist on this site if it were not first for George Knapp, who saved it from obscurity. It was a runaway hit around the world, but blocked here. He saw it one day, put me on coast to coast, and saved it. But it's saved for history and saved for you by David Lispy. David Lispy was a young man who was a fan of the film, showed up at my house one day, said, I'm going to build you a site so the world and history can have this film and excerpts from your work. That was nine years ago. For nine years, he's been maintaining this site, and now he does it from Thailand, where he's an American expatriate. So I cannot thank David enough, and you should be thanking him also. Also, I want to thank Mike Kim, the producer of this show. I've never met him, but he finds me the most fabulous and the most interesting guest anybody could ever have. And of course, I could not be doing the show if it weren't for the founders of BBS, Doug and Don Newsom. But again, the one I really want to thank, and I love all of the people I'm thanking, is my son Christopher. Christopher Ernest Barber is his name, and you can see it twice on the credits of Criminal Minds. He's one of the co-executive producers and one of the writers. And he is by far the greatest thing that I ever helped to produce. And now back to my show. I'm live here in Las Vegas with the brilliant Michael Hoffman and the equally brilliant Joe Satilli, who is here every time I do a show and without whom I could not do a show. I must tell you, uh, Joe, your mother and I just became friends on Facebook. So there you go. And how was your trip? Uh, I'm Tri sorry. The, I trip, can't... the trip was great. Oh, that's wonderful. Yep. And uh, I'm sorry it took uh, so long for us to get to you. But Michael is so interesting. Anyway, you have some questions for him because I'll forego my comments about Ben Heck because hopefully, Michael, you will come back later, maybe at the end of November after uh, the next anniversary of the Kennedy assassination and the midterm elections, I'd love to have you come back and get your observations. Could you do that? Yes, certainly. Oh, wonderful, and thank you. Joe, you have some questions for Michael. Uh, well, where to begin? Where? What direction would you like to go, John? Because um, uh, Michael, my, my name is J.P. Satilli, Joe Satilli. Uh, actually, my background is in history of fascism. I studied 
the ideological ideological roots of fascism, and particularly the the occult roots of fascism, dating back to the 19th century in Vienna. Uh, and I was looking around at some of the stuff that's online. And uh, you familiar with um, Henry Mako, or is it Macau? Do you know how he pronounces his name? I'm not sure how he pronounces it, but yes, I am familiar with him, and uh, he's done some nice things for me. Right. So obviously, the elephant in the room is the charge of anti-Semitism. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to give a response to a charge which is basically many of your critics, almost to a, to a person, your critics charge you with anti-Semitism. What is your response to the charge? Oh, it's just uh, absurd uh, ad hominem attacks by people who can't refute my information. I mean, that's why my books were banned on Amazon. I have a standing open offer to any ordained Orthodox rabbi who has a certificate of ordination, who's willing to debate me in front of an audience where I would decide one half of the audience, he would decide the other. The whole thing was videotaped without censorship or editing. That has been issued for the past 10 years and I've never had one taker. In fact, I get private communications and, and one of those communications we published and the rabbi said he didn't want it published where the rabbi was calling me an expert Talmud scholar, but that was for private only. And when we published it, then he uh, was embarrassed and wanted to withdraw it. Uh, the people who are, and I hate, hesitate to use the word anti-Semitic because what that literally means is a racial hate of persons who are descendants of the uh, people of Shem, the Shemites or the Semites. It's nonsensical. Uh, we don't know where today's Judaic people are actually from. There's some genetic coding, and there's a lot of controversy about that. But in point of fact, if we're going to call Jew haters and try and trace where the Jew haters are, they're the authors of the Babylonian Talmud who have created this micromanaged world for Judaic people where virtually everything they have to do is decided according to both Talmudic texts, the Mishnaic texts, and uh, post-Talmudic uh, halakha on the part of the Mishnah Berura and uh, the Chafetz Haim and things like that. And I'll just take this opportunity, Joe, to just very briefly, out of Judaism's Strange Gods, on page 19, uh, and there's a subsection called Jew or Judaic, quote, Jew is a holy world, a holy word. Jew is a holy word. And the generalized association of it with dis without distinction with intrinsic evil is surely a blunder on the part of biblical Christians. Some ancient Jews were horribly evil, along with many Gentiles. Other Jews were the channel through which our salvation flowed, end quote. Now, how could any book that contains those pro-Judaic sentiments for the liberation of Judaic people from the Talmudic enslavement how could that be considered Jew hatred or so-called anti-Semitism? It's strictly a canard to demonize me and keep rational and non-hateful people away from giving a serious consideration to my research. That's the whole mechanism at work. Okay, so Joe, uh, uh, Joe, well, I, let me follow very quickly. Oh, I want to follow quickly. Okay, go ahead. So go ahead. Uh, I'm I'm on Henry Mako's website right now, and he's uh, has a, a an article about Judaism discovered your book. Uh, this is from June 15th, 2016. And as you said, he's written some nice things or done some nice things for you. But the the headline that he has here is Michael Hoffman dash Judaism is Satanism. So 
would you say that that's actually a counterproductive view of your work from somebody who positions himself as an ally and maybe contributes to some of the because I you could one could understand why anybody who's not familiar with your work but is Jewish would take offense at that. Well, anybody who is considering my work and is Jewish or Mongolian or Chinese or American ought to realize that you go to the source. You know, I mean, journalism, it's not just Henry. Journalism is all over the scale in terms of lurid headlines in order to grab people's attention. I don't really have the luxury to alienate myself from Henry because or from John Barber or from you, for that matter, unless Henry was to say something that was in any way hateful of Judaic people or supportive of neo-Nazism and Hitler, those things I draw the line at. But the fact that he's engaging in some purple prose, uh, he's been a strong supporter of mine to an audience that maybe I wouldn't have reached otherwise. What I would say is, is that there is a satanic element in Judaism largely concentrated in the Kabbalistic book of Zohar, which we now have in this age of the revelation of the method, which I talk about in Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. They feel so confident that they've actually published an uncensored edition, the Pritzker edition from Stanford University of the Zohar, and I recommend people purchase it and study it or get it at the library. And that's, that is fundamentally satanic. It okay, involves- Michael. Michael and Joe, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second because I don't know how it went from this interesting discussion to somehow boil down to that terrible word, anti-Semitic. I said I wasn't going to mention Ben Hecht, but I will will mention Ben Hecht. Ben Hecht said one of the smartest things that I ever read in his book. He said, Jews are the yeast and the bread of civilization that cause it to rise. Which is certainly true, because if you look at the writers and you look at the musicians and you look at the creators, most of them are Jewish. That being said, I would urge anyone to get Ben Hicks, a child of the century, and read the the last chapter called The Committee. Before the state of Israel was created, he was hired by the Ergun to be their first propagandist for the state of Israel. And Eli Wiesel was was the second propagandist for there. But John, I have to... Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Okay, but I will dissent from Ben Heck's first statement about Jews as yeast. Uh, That's that's, that's Okay, that's that's fine. That's fine, because you talked about the accomplishments of of Judaic people. I'm just saying that I think it's a brilliant observation, because when I look at the people in my life that I've gotten the most joy from, they happen to be Jewish, except... What happened with Ben Heck, I read the, the chapter. He, he, on his own, he could not write any longer for any Jews in Hollywood. He had to write under the name of Joseph, uh, uh, Patrick Henry for Spiro Skouris, a Greek, because he was helping Jewish Ergun fighters get rid of the British from Palestine so they could create a state unhindered by the uh, British and the Balfour Declaration. They bought a ship. On this ship, 1,000 Jews from America went to Israel to join the Ergun and the other so-called terrorists to rid Palestine, not of Germans, but of the British, so they could have a free state. Ben-Gurion met this boat at the docks and sank it 
killing 1,000 of his fellow Jews, blessed the cannons and put them in a museum in Tel Aviv. Then had quit being a Zionist at that time, saying that the Jews he knew became the worst humans in the world, and they are politicians. I would also suggest that people go to, uh, uh, they can get it free. It's called Perfidy. It's about a trial about a guy named Kastner in Israel. If you saw the movie, The Boys of Brazil, you see this, uh, you see this uh, old lady spots uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier and said that he's a death camp commandant, okay? And the movie uh, unfolds from that point. What happened is the same thing to this guy, Kastner. And the Zionist government tried to prevent his trial. When he was finally brought to trial, Ben Hecht went to cover it. And here was a prominent Jew who had overseen the transportation of 10,000 fellow Jews to the death camps in uh, Dachau. So I, I want, to, uh, want to keep uh, Joe and Michael on for another five minutes to conclude this and let Richard finish his story. And Richard, as you finish your story, rest assured, it will not have been interrupted by this extraneous audio when we finally edit it down to the video. So please complete the, the rest of your story. Well, John Sack uh, wrote the book, An Eye for an Eye. I had the privilege of hearing him speak at a conference sponsored by David Irving, another demonized character around whom there is all this argumentum ad hominem, uh, whereas people need to, again, consider his work and, and for themselves without uh, the gatekeepers intervening. And so um, Sack is another one of these guys who was an insider and converted to the truth and got the truth out there in a very dynamic fashion. But I think, John, that people may not understand from, from perhaps what you're articulating about, uh, about perfidy and about Ben Hecht is that I know that you know, as a scholar of the Kennedy assassination and what you've seen from your own perch inside the media, that as bad as some certain Judaic people have been in history. And as we all know, in all races and all religions, there are bad apples. I think that they have been vastly surpassed by the wicked and evil Gentiles, who beginning in the Renaissance, as I point out in my book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, beginning in the Renaissance, picked up the technology of the Kabbalah and of the Talmud and protected it, not only in Protestant Elizabethan England, as many Catholics and Irish and other people have been taught to believe, and it happens to be true, but also in Rome itself, which is the thesis of my book, beginning in Florence in the 1450, when I say Rome, I mean the papacy and, and the Vatican, but beginning in 1450 in Florence. And so, uh, unfortunately, just like as I studied usury, I saw all of this information about Judaic usury bankers, but the Rothschilds were nothing when usury got a real foothold in Europe. Usury got a foothold in Europe in the late 15th century, and those were German Catholics and Italian Catholics who were running those banks. Judaics had very little role in that. There has been a misdirection phenomena at work here where Judaic people are sometimes scapegoated for what these vampire-like Gentiles are doing behind the scenes. Are they allied with, with certain evil Judaic persons? Yes, they are. But they're also able to conceal their evil down through the centuries by casting the spotlight on the Judaics 
and they themselves escape, if you will, perfidy. Uh, go, go ahead, Joe. You have a response to that because I have a response that's going to close this, which is, a, is, is another of Ben Hedrick's book. Go ahead, Joe. So is your contention that there is a dark occultic version uh, buried in the what most people consider to be the Old Testament, which would be the Torah or in the, in the Jewish tradition that has been inherited or picked up by Gentiles? Was it also maybe picked up by the other uh, child of Judaism, which would be Islam? I mean, is there a is really your your the focus of your work on this occultic uh, secret uh, knowledge that has been carried forward over the generations? Is that really where you're going with this? Is that the, the, the focus of your work? I'd be a lot more popular if it was, because there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of new age there are a lot of new age people and free thinkers um, who are have really got the wrong idea about the Old Testament. If there's anything I've learned from the last 15 years of intensive study of Orthodox Judaism, it is that that's a religion that is anti-Old Testament. And that can be a subject for another program. There's no way we can deal with that in a couple of minutes. But what I would say is, is that my focus is on the Babylonian Talmud, the Kabbalah, what Jesus referred to uh, in uh, Mark 7 and Matthew 15 as the traditions of men. And if we are going to be anti-Old Testament, and I understand superficially there's many reasons for doing that, what we regard as genocide and so forth. We have to be honest and admit that we're therefore going to be anti-Christ because Jesus and his apostles quoted the Old Testament approvingly hundreds of times. And there is no Christianity without the Old Testament. Adolf Hitler tried to invent a a Old Testament-free Christianity with the official Aryan church that he was trying to start up there. And uh, other people have tried to do that to separate Christ from the Old Testament. It's a typical uh, New Age uh, move, and uh, it just doesn't hold water. One, one either has to be pro-Christ and pro-Old Testament, or we have nothing. Okay, it doesn't hold water that anybody can walk on. So I want to thank the both of you. Uh, Michael, you'll be back again toward the end of November, first part of December. Joe again in two weeks. Michael, where can people find you and get your book? And then, Joe, where can people get your great news fandom? Well, I'd like to say if I come back on in November, I'd like to have Joe on with me. I thought his questions were uh, astute. And well, um, he will be. I can't get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at the A in the circle. So at Hoffman Michael A and also online at revisionisthistory.org. Uh, and Joe, you're, yeah, newsvandal.com, same bat time, same bat channel. I'll be back in two weeks. And John, as ever, it's my pleasure to be your trusty sidekick. I am the Robin to your Batman. <laughs> That's or actually, I'm the Jimmy Olsen okay. to your Superman. Well, oh, well, I got, oh no, my Dr. Watson to my Sherlock. Oh, I'm Holmes. Dr. There, Watson. There you go. But, uh, I'm going to leave you again with, uh, a book that I read after I read A Child of the Century. Of course, I went out and got every one of Ben Head's books, and I was working in the mailroom at Paramount at the time. But from it was books that saved me uh, from an orphan-like childhood, okay? So, and the book was called The Guide for the Bedeviled. And basically, what Ben Heck says in the book, do not follow any 
authority ever in your life, whether it's religious or whether it's political or whether it's esoteric or whether it's metaphysical. Do not follow any authority whatsoever because their purpose is not to inform you it's like, or to save you or to help you. None of these organizations are. The FBI is not there to solve crimes because without crooks, there's no FBI. Same with the Central Intelligence Agency. I will tell you right now, Ben didn't say this, I'll say this. I would say 100% of all the people employed by the CIA know that their forebears murdered John Kennedy, but they had to defend the position because they're defending their jobs. And this is what Heck says in A Guide for the Bedeviled. You are a wasted life if you go through it following orders. Do not follow anybody but yourself. Just give up all authority. That means you must truly have an open mind. And if you have an open mind, you have no beliefs because you're open to everything. Okay, yes. Edmer used to say, good night and good luck. See you in two weeks, Joe. See you in a month, Michael. Bye-bye. The dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true.